Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seed Camp. Today we have Damien Kimmelman from Doodle. We'd like to start with the background of college, perhaps even earlier. What was it like being in college for you? What did you do? Did you have an entrepreneurial spirit there? Did you do anything when, when you were studying at the same time that you were uh, trying to build uh, another company? So um, I went to university at St. Andrews. Um, I studied uh, counterterrorism and political violence. No shit. Yes. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. It wasn't. <laughs> um, You're Jack Bauer. <laughs> hardly. <laughs> I can't even run around the block without <laughs> getting out of breath. Yeah, so I, I, I studied counterterrorism and political violence. <clears throat> I did my dissertation on uh, the quantitative uh, uh, effects of t terrorist plots um, on oil prices. Mm. So would there be... Could you see a correlation between a terrorist event and surge in oil prices? Totally. No, you can't. No, you can't. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> totally. It, it was pretty useless. But I didn't really go to class a lot at St. Andrews. I still graduated with a, a, a 2-1. And I spent most of my time doing other things. So I did um, uh, all the events at university, I ran all the major balls. I bought and sold houses. I flipped houses. And I built um, uh, an online game with one of my best friends. Um, online this is all while you were studying how to be Jack Bauer, huh? <laughs> so did, did that did that sort of start uh, sparking that, that maybe thought that if that didn't work out, that you would go into becoming an entrepreneur or was that just always just kind of a side project just to keep things entertaining? I think I'm very fortunate that my parents you know, didn't mind failure mm. and so I failed tons of times throughout my life mm. and all they cared about is to for me to pick myself back up and get going. Mm. So I didn't really mind going out on a limb mm. and doing something that might end up with, with failure. Mm. And so I, I think it started much earlier. I just had a lot of time to try new things out at university. Mm. And so, you know, because you tried all these different things, was there any one of them that you were doing particularly well that you were thinking, you know what, actually, I could do this. I could really do this. I could take real estate and become the next sort of real estate mogul. Yeah. So I made a huge amount of money in real estate, largely because of Prince William. Um, nice. There was um, uh, Prince William was the year above me at uni, and um, because he came to the, the university, there was a surge of uh, of U.S. students that came, and there was a shortage of proper student housing. There was new regulation that meant that housing of multiple occupancy had to be fireproofed, so it wiped off a huge amount of properties off the market. Not to mention the appreciation of um, house prices in general. Yeah, that St Andrews was being considered, you know, uh, a real destination um, for golfers again. Mm -hmm. And I think finally there was a, an arbitrage with the U.S. dollar and the pound at the time, so it was winning on like every single front, and it was pretty easy money. So I I wrote that. Yeah. That for a few years. So, but was that like, you know, after you got to graduation, you know, and the first sort of inkling of real life started hitting you, was it like, okay, maybe I should continue this. Maybe this is something I should, I should continue. Or was it like, okay, fine, that's over. 
now moving on to something else. So I graduated in 2006 and um, my sister got a mortgage on her house for 4.6% interest only um, for 30 years. Now the average 25 year old changes jobs at least every three to four years. So how can you have a mortgage for 30 years when most people switch jobs quite regularly? Yeah and don't have a stable income um, for 30 years. That led me to, to really think that it was time to get out of the market, that it was a little mm. too um, inflated. And sure enough, you called it right on time, because if that was 2006, then we had the whole housing and, and bubble pop, yeah. financial crisis, 2007-2008. So what did you do then? I built, um, um, well, I spent a bit of my <laughs> money that I made um, moving down to London. I built a, a web development agency in London with a guy who... What was it uh, called? It was called We Are VI. We Are VI. Horrible name. <laughs> what did the VI stand for? Everybody was like, six. It was my... Oh, six. Okay, I guess. No, no, it wasn't six, but people thought it was, we are six. What's six? We are <laughs> um, I've never been really good at, at getting um, uh, names correct for businesses. Do I deal? Do <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it's still pretty good. So I went into business with a guy who had another company called Vivid Image. Mm. And I thought that it was a pretty cheesy um, uh, name to call a business. So I so said, we are, we are VI. Oh, uh, okay. That was the um, derivation of the name. So yeah, so what, so what happened there was, so you were, you were selling to some of the startups, early startups that were kind of coming out and needed somebody to polish up their yeah. web presence. What were the, maybe the first clients you had? I'd built a lot of websites um, over the years. And, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to get into, but I wanted to see what were the problems faced by most businesses. And I ended up uh, going into business with a guy who was a little unsavory. He falsified his accounts. He used his falsified accounts to get a loan from a bank and I hadn't done my due diligence and looking back on it I realized that there was wealth of information on private businesses that people were blind to the fact that there was such a, a vast amount of uh, information on private businesses because it was siloed it was siloed in government agencies it was siloed online it was siloed in the businesses themselves mm. and in the banks and I wanted to bring together a business that would sort of focus on the, the, the richness of the data out there. But before we go too much into, into the story of Doodle, maybe you can go back to like what happened when you found out that this guy had faked his accounts. I mean, how did you manage that? Because I'm sure there's other founders out there who are probably not necessarily in the same situation, but in a situation where they're like, oh, crap, this isn't really going to work out the way I expected. Or maybe it's not working out with my founder and a co-founder. And so how did you unwind that? How did you move past that? I think I, I chose to ignore it for, for a while, and uh, I think um, that just compounded the situation. And I think I really, you know, calling it We Are VI versus Vivid Image was sort of, you know, my way of, of distancing myself from it, even before I really understood it myself, um, but it was sort of a clean slate. And to be fair, I think I tell this story quite a lot. Yeah, he's he's probably moved on. He was young as well. 
He was just trying to build the business. And um, yeah, yeah, I was you know, messed around by him, but I think um, a lot of people do make mistakes. Um, and uh, I think they need the chance to, to be able to move on mm. and to correct it. He was pretty young as well. It wasn't as if he was like some hard-nosed you know, criminal or mm. what have you. So after, after that ended, did you did you decide to take some time off? Did you decide, hey, look, this is this is maybe not for me. This, you know, I've gotten burned now. Uh, you know, what what year was that roughly? That was two thousand seven. So I graduated in two thousand six. So we're in the <coughs> we're in the like the trough of like the financial yeah it was horrible issues. What what were you thinking? It's like uh, might as well just take a, a a trip somewhere. Or what what were you? No, thinking? I kept on going. I wanted to see it out. We got an offer for acquisition. We did some incredible work. We got an offer for acquisition. But it was from a company that wanted us to, to work on some uh, augmented reality in 2000. Yeah, this was sort of 2010. So I, I kept on going for a few years. They wanted to do .NET, augmented reality, and Flash. And those are three things that I just didn't, from a technical perspective, I just didn't want to have anything to do with then. I thought that it was way too early for augmented reality. Yeah, I still think it's way too early. It's and this is right around the time the iPhone was really starting to, to really kind of get into a stride as well. Yeah, and there was com- there were companies like Blipper mm. um, stuff, but it was like all the rage for all these agencies in London to do like these QR code, like augmented reality stuff. And it was just, it was too, it wasn't productionizable. Yeah. And I think the the people in my company thought that as well. Mm. They weren't too excited to go work for this um, AR company. So we closed it down. I liquidated the business. I spent uh, £70,000 uh, keeping it open for another, of my own personal money to keep it open for another month um, so that people had a smooth transition and so that customers had a smooth transition. Probably the, the you know, uh, top two worst times of my life, but I have to say also one of the best. Mm. Like it is so clarifying when you finally decided to shut something down. Mm. It was a super tough time uh, in the market for you know a startup agency. Mm. You know the thing that I hated about agency life was that you pitch, you do your best work on pitches, and then it just gets cut down again and again whatever was really beautiful and clean yeah turns out to be sort of a frankenstein type project yeah in the end because you have so many decision makers and being the new agency you sort of have to kowtow to um uh you know other individuals and they are the clients yeah and so but let's uh, like you know it's an interesting thing that you said that you you chose a transition period as as you ended the company Maybe you can walk us through, or maybe recommendations that you would have for founders out there who are in that either stage of thinking about shutting down to start something new, or in that stage where they're actually having to deal with this. And you know, it's not something we talk about a lot in, yeah. in this podcast, but it's like, what is what would recommendation be for how to manage customers in a, in a wind down? I think it's very different now than it was four years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a real um, sort of scarlet letter associated with um, uh, shutting businesses down only five years ago in the UK, not in the US, but in the UK. Now I think it's really different. I think 
as a founder, you have your reputation and your reputation is always going to take a hit no matter what if you shut down your business. And so you have to be very, very correct in the way that you do that. Mm. I think uh, honesty and uh, openness about the, 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 the reasons uh, is the best policy. Um, because if you create a bad reputation long term, you won't be able to do anything different. Every single phenomenal, successful business person has had to go through shutting down a business or uh, you know, closing up shop or something near bankruptcy. You know, we all um, look at Elon Musk as you know, such a savior, but he, from his own um, admission in his, um, in his uh, uh, autobiography, says that he, was, you know, he had to pretend that he was going to take money from one company to pay the other so that he could keep both um, Tesla and SpaceX open. Yeah. But the, the, the worst thing that you can do is do something illegal yeah because anybody will will um, look at failure as a badge of honor as if you've you know you're going to be a phoenix but if you've done something illegal you're tarred for life and it's very easy to think about doing things that are illegal because they save you from humiliation or they give you a second chance, you know, moving uh, money out of a, a business before, you know, it's about to go bankrupt, but you know that it's going to go bankrupt. Or doing stupid things that seem sort of like you're tricking the system. That is probably the stupidest thing that you could do. Mm. Um, there's always a second chance if you don't try and, um, you know, cut corners. Yeah. Okay, so you shut it down, you know, you had in the back of your mind, uh, you know, we talked about in 2007 how you had come to maybe have the beginnings of this idea that would become Doodle. Um, now it's 2010, you've decided to walk away from an early augmented reality market and you're now left with what? Did you take a pause? Did you... Did no, you I didn't. Straight into some new project? Straight, straight in. I think it was like a few days um, after I like completely uh, closed up shop, um, or I would left, you know, the paperwork hadn't come through yet. Yeah. I was, so when I was at, if you look at our uh, company's company house records, it says that Doodle was founded in two thousand nine. That's because I I registered a business in two thousand nine because I I wanted to uh, start something on the side some new project mm. and I knew that credit rating agencies, uh, I knew how to, how to sort of gain credit rating, mm. um, uh, agencies. So by registering the business and letting it sit dormant for several years, mm. you'd have, you know, and then having some trading history, you know, the CRAs would look at you as a, uh, as a, a longstanding business. Mm. Um, and it would look preferably on your credit. Mm. Which is really important when you're starting off because you don't have much money. Mm. Um, so I did that, but I used that same sort of dormant company, and this was uh, early 2010. Oh, sorry, late late 2010, beginning of 2011. I started building with uh, two guys from my previous company, 
and uh, two guys who had uh, who we had just hired um, a designer and three engineers. But you started. Did you start building something? You know, did you say, "Hey guys, let's work on something," or did you already have this thing? Okay, clearly, this is what I'm going to do. This is what the vision is. This is what the plan is. Yes and no. We had some inkling. Do you remember what it was? Could you, if you had to, like repeat what you said to them verbatim? You think you could? Yeah. There's all of these websites with private company information, and we can build a better website. <laughs> it was, it was as, as simple as that. So we can build a better website to just aggregate public information. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they were like, yes, that sounds great. But it wasn't public then, yeah. right? You, you were, were they to, more excited about your idea or more excited about the idea of working with you? Truthfully, I think that they were excited about working on something that was disruptive. Mm. And I showed them how it was disruptive. Mm. I think um, we... Um, you know, from in in the beginning, we were sort of testing things out and testing out hypotheses and trying to figure out what was um, viable, what was you know, and that's why we. What was the hypothesis that you tested out that you were like so sure would potentially be an interesting thing that ultimately didn't pan out? The do deal that never was, if you will. Oh, there are tons of those. So the first iteration of the first two weeks was focused around the individuals and then the companies. So it was basically, um, you could go onto a LinkedIn profile and we created a Chrome extension for LinkedIn that would tell the background of the person and the business um, and would allow you to um, rate or recommend those people. Yeah, um, because hot, hot or not for credit and for for, for for individuals because all the stuff on LinkedIn was bullshit. Yeah. So how did it fail? Well, like, that sounds kind of compelling. What, what what went wrong, or did people just not respond to it? I think it was timing, right? I think a lot of great ideas are um, fail because of the, the the you you haven't sort of gotten the right timing with um, most users. So people were interested in it, but they wouldn't contribute to it. Mm. So. Is that out of fear of retribution or? Yeah, totally. Um, and anything that they shared on individuals was always positive, which is <coughs> really good. Yeah. But LinkedIn already does a good job at that. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and you wanted to create a balance between the good and sort of the not so good. Yeah. You know, I wanted to create transparency in business. Yeah. And um, that was, you know, that was the, 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 sort of the, the genesis of Doodle was <clears throat> to create transparency in business that there was a vast amount of data available on businesses and that transparency was ultimately good for society. Yeah. And, you know, I think that transitioned to more of a sharing yeah. rather than uh, exposing. Yeah. So when was when was it the first time that you actually said, okay, now I think I think we've cracked it. I think this is probably what we really need to double down on. When we very you know very early on we pitched, so the the first thing that we did was we pitched uh, TechCrunch Disrupt, which was called Tech Geek and Roller. Yeah, Geek time. and Roller. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And we won Geek and Roller, and if you look at the pitch then. It's exactly what we're doing now, mm. right? It really, um, you know, verbatim 
you know, the way that we talk about it is mm -hmm. more sophisticated, mm -hmm. but all of the fundamental pieces um, in 2011 were there. <clears throat> um, how we see the market is there, and we've proved it out quite quite extensively. Um, you know, and it's because so to sort of rewind before university, and while I was at university, um, I was doing risk assessment on CDSs on credit default swaps, mm. and that was a, a market that really wasn't transparent, and it wasn't transparent just as you know private company information or private company um, weren't transparent. And the challenges that you had with CDSs were very similar. Whereas you saw public markets, which were, you know, which had high, high liquidity and were really um, efficient markets. Mm -hmm. But there were so many inefficiencies with private, private companies. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look back before Bloomberg um, was created, Back in um, yeah, back 35 years ago, it wasn't until Bloomberg and <clears throat> the likes of um, Factset and some of their other competitors um, sort of hit the market and they started to digitize this information. Yeah, that um, liquidity increase, cost decrease, um, and markets grew faster than they had ever done before. We don't remember when most public company information was shared. Over the phone, yeah. or by fax, yeah. Yeah. or face to face, yeah. and that's kind of crazy. And that's what private markets are. Yeah, people assume that the private and private uh, companies refers to privacy, but businesses aren't as worried about privacy mm. as they are about how do I get new customers mm. and how do I get paid, right? Those are the chief concerns about a business. We put too much stock in this word private um, and it hurts businesses uh, mm. as a result. Mm. So if we look at that early sort of point where people really started kind of latching onto that, to that value prop and the, the first customers you had, the first sort of um, the customer acquisition model that you had, walk us through that. What, how did you kind of come up with that? Was that you? Was that somebody else in your team? What, what did that look like? So we haven't had, so we started to have customers um, two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. So we didn't, we were totally free for a very long time. And the reason was, was because we were really focused on solving a different problem. We saw all of these competitors springing up all around the world that were dealing with certain silos of private company information. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, sort of naive in a lot of ways. They were you know, sort of focused on one vertical, so uh, wealth, you know, private wealth management, or mm. you know, B2B lead generation, or you know, risk management, or compliance, or KYC. And we saw the needs of, of you know, um, external-facing teams within organizations becoming more and more sophisticated and use cases blending further and further. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, we decided to be, um, similar to, to, to Box, a horizontal B2B SaaS business, mm -hmm. focused on the generalization of data consumption and handling, 
because the amount of use cases that you could um, sort of um, uh, you know, really give um, uh, compelling solutions for and the marginal cost for uh, onboarding new data were as such that if you focused on, on the data first, then you could provide great solutions to every industry mm. um, and teams and uh, every part of the, the business. Mm. I mean, that makes sense. But at some point, maybe your investors, and maybe we can talk a little bit about your investor base in, in, a, in a few minutes, but like when you started to turn on your, your customer um, monetization, what was that like and how did you acquire those customers and how have you scaled your customer acquisition since? Yeah. So the first year of revenues, we focused on figuring out how to, to um, uh, monetize Doodle. Um, and um, so we did transactional, we did uh, monthly memberships, we did um, enterprise sales, but small enterprise sales, we did API sales. Um, that was really an exploration. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second year, we cut off nearly most of them, even though that was about uh, 50 to 60% of our revenues mm -hmm. we cut off. Um, we did that because um, uh, you need to, to, to focus yeah. on it. Um, we didn't know how it was going to be properly monetized. And I think that that really, um, uh, you know, it annoyed a, a number of users because um, we didn't have those transactional products anymore. All of a sudden, it was yeah, gone from free to very expensive in their in their minds. But we saw that the the that we were doing the best. We were changing businesses the most, who were much bigger. Yeah. And that's a hard pill to swallow when you're trying to create transparency and you're trying to um, you know, be better for the economy. The reality is, is that SMEs are slower to adopt mm. new technology than medium to large businesses. And that's sort of that, that you only realize this um, when you actually try and sell to them. Yeah. Um, it's far harder to sell somebody to change their sales process that's a mom-and-pop shop than it's a sales director or a procurement person who has a quota attached to their, their job. Mm. That's interesting. You know, it's, it's different. I guess it's different. It may be counterintuitive to, to so, some people might think. But... Um, what did you end up stabilizing on then? What, what did you end up, at what point did you think, okay, this is going to work. Let's double down on this and start building an organization around that. We saw some great anecdotal evidence of people really making um, uh, sales transformation um, and uh, you know, procurement transformation within their organization. Um, and we saw that we could eventually... Um, uh, sort of simplify the offerings for SME clients, um, but that we'd focus first on the large businesses, and then it's very easy to create uh, a, a product once you have you know, considerable traction right. um, with you know, big brands and things. Mm -hmm. Also from a data perspective, and this was something that um, I really haven't talked about, 
but I like to um, focus on the understanding of the complexity of the, 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 the data because then you can synthesize it afterwards, but it's far more difficult to do something simple and then make it more complex. Yeah. Uh, largest, larger teams, so we work across a lot of teams in, in organizations. We work across sales teams. Mm-hmm. Um, we work across uh, yeah, procurement, um, credit, compliance, um, and in other, you know, the, the management team, the operations yeah. team. That's going to require quite a different set of skills for whomever from Doodle is interfacing with these companies. I mean, that's got to be that's got to be a very different kind of organization, sales organization, to build within Doodle to to sort of service that many. Yeah, so it's it's tough at first, um, and what we the approach that we've taken is sort of a land and expand. So we've gotten some phenomenal. Uh, um, you know, logos um, this past year. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, now we're looking to expand within those organizations. Mm. But can you walk us through, so if a founder were right now listening to you and thinking, okay, how did he, how did he scale his organization to address the needs of those kinds of customers? Like, what does your sales pipeline look like? Who did you hire? How do you train them to be able to address that? Because once you figure it out kind of how to potentially monetize them, building out that whole sales organization for these kinds of products is not easy. So, Yeah, distribution is, is really tough. And I think it's something that, well, it's the reason why most businesses fail. Yeah. Um, because um, they think that the product can do everything. Yeah. And it really can't. Um, uh, and um, I think that's down to having a great VP of sales and what a great VP of sales is, is really challenging to understand um, if you haven't built up a, a sales team before. Luckily, we have a phenomenal VP of sales who's very process driven. Yeah. <coughs> um, and we've scaled the team to from three this year to about um, uh, uh, 25. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. That's big now. Yeah. That's just the sales organization. Just sales. And how much as a founder did you get involved in the, that hiring or did you basically hire the VP of sales and then he's just been in charge of finding those people and training them? Um, nearly every hire I've been involved with. Okay. Um, because, um, you know, it, we have stumbled um, before, in terms of making sure that our culture matches, yeah, we have a very complex business, which um, really requires um, because not everybody in the organization is the customer, right? Yeah, it's not like um, Facebook or Instagram where everybody is Gets the it, customer. Yeah. Um, we have to make sure that there's real um, customer development. And mm. we really focus on customer development and inquiry around the company. That means that both the sales team and the engineers have to talk um, incredibly um, uh, uh, and have to fit incredibly well together. And how, how long is, if you don't mind my asking, how long is that sales cycle? Like how long does it take roughly? So right now um, it takes about a month to close mm. um, a business. 
So you have to abstract that out from Doodle, but just so that the people who are listening can get a feeling for the different kinds of sales processes that you have. Yeah. What What's that look like? Is it like one of the 25 people has an initial meeting and then the engineer comes in and talks about how they need to adapt it? Maybe just so an abstract version of it so for people to understand the sales process. Yeah. So um, one thing to, to note about the sales process is it's always changing and it always has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it changes um, really on a, a quarterly uh, basis. Mm. And so what we've focused on is is hiring people who um, uh, are coachable. Um, that means that um, they'll get along with engineers, and that means that as we scale the business, um, they can scale with it. Mm. Um, it's very difficult going from, you know, getting somebody who's transactional, I promise I'll get back to mm. your question, but mm. it's very difficult bringing somebody who's transactional to all of a sudden um, doing uh, an enterprise sales. And most of the time that doesn't work. Mm. So you have to, you have to really, you know, have a, have a understanding of where you're, you have to have predictable revenues mm-hmm. and you have to understand what you're going to need in six months time to, anticipate that properly yeah um our funnel um uh you know has its um uh advantages and disadvantages but fundamentally um uh we're we have uh two teams um in sales we have the sdrs or the lead qualification Mm -hmm. guys and then we have the field sales. Mm-hmm. Now we use this to um, this sort of split sales team because we wanted to land into a lot of great logos, mm-hmm. and, but that doesn't necessarily scale, um, uh, you know, as quickly as possible. Yeah, um, we um, are bringing in inside sales mm-hmm. because we have a compelling enough um, you know uh, offering that we don't need to be face to face in every single meeting mm-hmm. that's much more scalable for international yeah but we couldn't have made sure that we had a proper um, uh, sort of um, uh, spy network yeah or you know um, customer development network mm-hmm. um, if we didn't uh, um, have those in you know the, those those field sales mm. going out to meetings um, you know feeding back on what customers mm. um, need and eliciting the right feedback and mm. I think that that's really important mm. Um, when you're in an enterprise business, making sure that you elicit the, the correct feedback mm. is always the toughest challenge, especially when you have such a, a diverse um, uh, customer base. Mm. And if, if you, if we talked about it, how it takes about a month and then you have this split, this split um, sales force, some that qualify and some that follow up and then they're coachable and as a consequence of that, they can help um, understand the needs of the customer a little bit better because you've helped them kind of work through all the attributes that they need to be looking out for. You know, you've built out this organization and it seems to obviously 
be functioning successfully. But it all started off with that VP of sales. And I was having a chat with Scott Sage recently about sort of the, the role of the first hire, the first sales hire. And um, we explored the idea between like, okay, what happens if you hire somebody who's too young, but perhaps ambitious, lack, lacking experience in hiring others versus like the sort of really old, you know, experienced salesperson, but maybe expecting a lot of perks that usually come along with, um, with having a larger sales organization around them. What was that thinking that you had when you hired that first VP of sales? Because a lot of founders are probably going to be in that position of having to hire that guy. What were the criteria and what, what, what was the sort of the ideal abstract before you actually met the, the guy you ended up hiring? Yeah. Um, so it was an it was an evolution of figuring out what we needed. Mm. Um, so we went out so um, with a lot of things in the business, um, things that I don't know about. Mm -hmm. I immerse myself in, and mm -hmm. so does Justin. Um, and so whatever I'm doing in the business is something that I don't know enough about mm -hmm. <laughs> that I need to. Um, make sure that I do because mm -hmm. um, how am I to make a decision on something that's transformative to the business if I haven't rolled up my sleeves and gotten dirty with the problem itself. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I read a number of books. Um, uh, luckily, we read you know, Predictable Revenue, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, yeah, um, an awesome book. And... Um, it really clarified a lot of the things that we needed to to do in terms of um, sales organization and sort of mm -hmm. the um, profile of the, the person that we were looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that we, you know, that we did was we went with, for our Series A, we went with um, Notion. And we went with Notion largely because they had so much B2B SaaS experience. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, you know, we that was obviously a, you know, I had never done B2B SaaS nor had Justin. So if this was going to be our business model, we <laughs> might as well mm -hmm. you know, uh, understand it as much as possible. So that was um, uh, a really wise decision. So we had a number of people on the board with experience. Furthermore, we you know, really tried to Get our hands dirty. So you, you definitely surrounded yourself with the right advisors, but did, did that enable you then to like bet on a young gun who's perhaps less experienced because you knew you were going to coach him, or did you still go with the sort of wise so, say, sage of, of old, if you will? So I wouldn't call Darren old, <laughs> um, but sorry, um, Darren, if you're listening to this, he's uh, he's had quite an illustrious career, mm -hmm. um, but. You know, and, and this is, I, I, I hope that he doesn't take offense to this because mm. I think it's one of the best characteristics that I've seen in anybody. You know, when you look at people to, to fill out VP positions, mm. I think a good litmus test is um, somebody who um, uh, it, um, has a chip on their shoulder. Mm. Um, some, somebody has something to prove. Mm. And... Darren has that grit. He mm. has that stamina. He has that, you know, real uh, determination. But he also has a huge amount of humility. You know, it's it's perseverance. It's um, mm. a combination of he's a realist, so he doesn't 
you know, when when things go wrong, which they're bound to do, he doesn't get really phased by mm. it. He has a reason, um, a, a reason d'etre. You know, mm. that, that's what I call it, chip on your shoulder. Yeah, like, reason d'etre. A, a, a reason. Do you say? Would you say you relate to that as well? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, the culture, it's, it's endemic into the culture of the company. Yeah. So you're hiring people who kind of fit into that that culture. Yeah. I do know. Um, I think grit is is really important because I think um, regardless of what business you're in, mm. it's always going to hit. At some point, it's going to hit a hiccup, no matter what business it is. And the only way that you get out of it is if you have, you know, a really, really strong team mm. that perseveres. Yeah. And, you know, Darren's um, uh, sort of symbolic of that. Yeah. And the way that he runs his, um, his sales team is, is, is very much like that. Mm. So Doodle today, what what um, what would you like to, to tell the audience about Doodle today? You know, maybe for those that are considering either being customers or just, just a chance to sort of talk a little bit about the vision. Yeah, so at Doodle, we, we solve two of the biggest problems facing businesses. Um, how do I get new customers um, and how do I get paid? And I think most of um, your audience is startups mm -hmm. and getting their first initial customers mm -hmm. is really tough. Um, most people tend to go for, you know, trying to write blogs, trying to get press. The reality is, is that you need a foot in the door and you just need to get into these businesses, you know, through anyway. Yeah. So then most people um, go to Google or LinkedIn and Google and LinkedIn are not purpose-built solutions. And as such, they, cost a lot of time to use. Yeah. On Doodle, you can get the real intelligence about mm. businesses and you can get it so quickly and you can contact those businesses any way possible. Mm. You can contact them by email, by social, by, you know, by direct mail. And for getting those initial customers, mm. um, we've seen huge success. Mm. And maybe I can give you an example. So just around the corner, there's... Um, a, a pub called Bounce. Mm -hmm. uh, Bounce uses us for finding all the businesses in a certain, um, uh, you know, in the vicinity yeah. that are about to have their anniversary, and they direct mail to those businesses. Nice. But you know, companies like Deliveroo or you know, all of these businesses use us for sales transformation. Yeah. When you start up your sales team, you need to make sure that you get it right. You need to make sure that you have the right data, that it's uh, updated. And it's so much more costly when you use Salesforce to mm -hmm. have to do this later on than if you set good precedence early on yeah. and you do the, the the initial sales transformation with Doodle. Yeah. And that's where we've seen a huge amount of success for, I think, um, people that would listen to yeah. to. That's excellent. Well, I mean, it definitely gives people perhaps a good idea of, of creative ways that they can use your service. So um, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Info at Doodle or? So they they can tweet me mm -hmm. uh, at Doodler. Um, they can email me, Damien at Doodle.com. I'm happy to um, put them through to the right person. Mm. Uh, or they can, you know, uh, call us up. I don't know, I telephone them. Cool. <laughs> That's all right. I'm sure you can Google it. Now, 
you know, over the course of your, your life, you've obviously been very, very uh, involved with not only mentoring other people, but, you know, you've gone through the entrepreneurial journey several times. And I know that you're very, very, um, very passionate about uh, helping other founders as well. Do you want to sort of conclude with a, a perhaps a plug for a cause that you really feel strongly about that, that uh, perhaps we could use as, uh, this channel to amplify? Yeah, of course. So uh, I've been very involved with Founders Pledge. Um, and uh, basically what the, the, the thesis behind Founders Pledge is that most people in tech, I, a lot of people in tech, feel that charity is a broken model and there's a tremendous amount of apathy towards charity mm -hmm. and there's a tremendous amount of apathy um, when you start off a business um, and um, they're right charity in many ways is broken but the some of the smartest people are not getting involved with things until later in their lives and that's a real shame um, you know, we started Founders Pledge um, to take a lot of the burden off of making a decision to get involved. Founders don't have time and they don't have money, so <clears throat> we've taken all of those on ourselves. It's a hundred percent model, which means that we can we we pay all of the legal fees for the due diligence, whatever it may be, so that. Uh, founders can give in the most tax-efficient way to charities and they pledge 2% of their equity or, or more but what it ends up doing is it builds um, uh, you know philanthropy into the DNA of, of a business mm. and I think as um, businesses or tech businesses start chipping away at the, at the foundations of all of these industries. Mm -hmm. Tech is not going to be looked at in the same fashion as it has been, as so, as so beneficial to society. And I think that, you know, building philanthropy into the DNA of an organization is really good for business. Yeah. Um, and it's good for society. And I think it's a super easy thing to do. Mm. Um, we've had incredible traction mm. in the last four months. We have 250 some odd uh, companies pledge. Mm. Um, the founders of Farfetch, the founders of, you know, um, Betfair, and yeah, you know, um, uh, the founders of um, uh, Funding Circle, the founders of, uh, you know, um, these are these are big names, right? Yeah, so big names <clears throat> backing the, the and cause. Hampton Creek, you know yeah. the. Just go onto the website and, and look. I don't want to um, name drop, but um, well, that's. I mean, that's very exciting. It's it's really exciting that you've taken um, the causes that you feel very strongly about, and not only creating infrastructure with Doodle for other people to be able to create value, but also creating value through through pledging. So, thanks again for being that part of the ecosystem, Dan. Thank you, and thanks Thank for you joining for us. Me. All right, bye.